Amen. Thanks, Jeff. So good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And let me reiterate what has already been said. It's, it's really good to see all of you. Uh, some of you for the first time in a while, and I want to say we've missed you, uh, and we're glad you're here. And I really do hope that that somehow the hope of this day will bolster us maybe, maybe into kind of a, something new on the other side of today, so who knows. Uh, but we're, we're uh, looking this morning at the passage in Matthew's Gospel that is the telling of the resurrection story. Uh, you'll find it in the Bible in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Uh, it's also going to be on the screen behind me or on your screen at home. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder, so find some place to read along as I read the account of the resurrection from these 10 verses. So let's read together. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And, gre- and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. You know, Christianity is different from all the other world religions. It is not a moral code. It's history. It's the accounting and the recounting of historical events. The resurrection wasn't, isn't just an idea. It actually happened, and it matters that it actually happened because the unique message of Christianity is that you are saved not by what you do, but by what God has done for you. All the other religions begin with something like this. Here's how you can, you know, here's how you should live. But in Christianity, Christianity begins with, here's what Jesus has done for you. It's gospel. It's good news, not instruction, news. And here's the news. It's news of God's power that has come from outside of history into this world. Jesus Christ, the God-man who died for our sins in our place so that through faith we could know God's love and receive the guarantee of eternal life all by grace as a gift. And Jesus was also raised from the dead on the third day to bring into history the powers of the age to come in which we will all be resurrected and every tear will be wiped away. That's our gospel. Now, all of that is true because Jesus is no longer in the grave. He's alive. Now, the question is, do you believe it actually happened? Do you believe that on the third day, as the women went to the tomb, his body was not there? And do you believe that his coming to life again means a new creation is coming to life with him? That this world of sin and death is passing away Something new is taking its place. And if you believe it, it will set your life on a whole new trajectory. The truth of the resurrection, here's what I want to say, okay? The truth of the resurrection is too big 
to, to believe and not be changed by it. To believe and it not shake your whole life the way the ground is shaking in this text. It's too big a truth to believe and just be casual about it. You cannot believe and live the same as people who don't believe. And so the text in Matthew 28, we chose this text because it is full of imperatives. It's full of commands. It's full of telling us what we should do in light of the reality of this day we've come to celebrate. Because there's a certain way that we should respond to the resurrection. There is an urgency that it puts upon our lives. And that's my question to you this morning. Do you believe? And if so... Do you feel the urgency that that belief brings into your life? So there are three things here, three imperatives from the text, the three imperatives of the resurrection that, we're, that are really laid upon us here. We just want to look at each of them, these three in turn, and here they are. Here are the three things that we are told that we should do in light of uh, what, what we're being told has been done for us by God here, and they're just this. Don't be afraid. Come and tell. Excuse me, come and see, go and tell. Now let's pose them as questions to allow them to kind of get into our hearts a little bit more. Here's what we're, we're after this morning. We're going to ask these questions of ourselves. Are you afraid? Do you believe? And will you go? Let's look at each in turn, beginning just with this first imperative, because it is what dominates this text. We're told here, do not be afraid. You see that in verse 5? And then again in verse 10? So are you afraid? There, uh, there is an account of the resurrection in each of the four Gospels. Each has a different focus. Matthew's account here is aimed right at our fear. You'll find the word fear four times in these ten verses. Twice in verses five and ten, the command don't be afraid because uh, this is what we're, we're meant to really wrestle with. Because Jesus has been raised, you don't have to be afraid. Can I say it again? Because Jesus has been raised, you don't have to be afraid. And here's one of the things we learned. Fear is perhaps our biggest spiritual problem. It is a major obstacle to both faith and love in our lives. Because when you're afraid, you'll struggle to trust God and to live for him. Because fear creates spiritual weakness in your life. But when you're afraid, you'll struggle to live for others in love too. Because fear makes you selfish. The Bible says these things. And so, if you read along in the scriptures, God talks about our fear with us more than any other subject. I mean, do not be afraid is the most oft-repeated command in the Bible, and it is a command. The same as do not murder, the same as do not commit adultery. God spends more time on our fear than anything else because he knows that murder and adultery and all the other sins are just the fruit. Fear is often the root. And at the bottom, all of our fear is really the fear of death. So in 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. And the thesis of the book is this, that the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts humanity like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity. He wrote 300 pages on the reality that in almost everything we do, we're being motivated by our avoidance and our fear of death. This is just what the Bible says. The Hebrews writer describes fear of death in Hebrews chapter 2 as an oppressive spiritual power that, that must be broken. Otherwise, as long as our fear of death stays intact, we are subject to what he calls lifelong spiritual slavery. And John Piper, quote, you know, commenting on that verse, he describes this slavery like this, this pervasive lifelong slavery, listen to this, haunting our choices, making us cautious, wary, restrained, confined, narrow, tight, 
robbing us of risk and adventure and dreams for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. He says, without our even knowing it, fear of death is a slave master, binding us with invisible ropes, confining us to small, safe, innocuous, self-centered ways of life. And in Hebrews, salvation involves being delivered from this whole way of life, being rescued from it. And I typically shy away from blanket statements. I don't think they're helpful typically, but here I'll say to you, you will not have the courage it takes to follow Jesus if your fear of death remains intact. Because from the beginning, Christians have stood out from the crowd because they've been known for their fearlessness in the face of death. I mean, think of the early Christians in the Roman arenas, courageously, joyfully, going towards their own executions, singing hymns as the lions prowled around them and then pounced and tore them to pieces. Or in times of plague, when everybody, everybody else left the cities, but the Christians stayed and took care of the sick and the poor until they themselves became sick and even died. Now, I know this is sensitive, given this past year. I'm just trying to make a point. Actually, in 1527, Martin Luther wrote a public letter, and the title of the public letter was Whether One May Flee from Deadly Plague. I wish I'd known that a year ago. I just, I just learned that you know, recently, but because it was a matter of contention then, as it is now, of course. And, and the reality was that some Christians believed they should flee, and, and it was the safe and responsible thing to do. Others believed that they should stay. So Luther wrote to kind of help the church in this, and his basic premise was this. He said both can be right, But the best part was, except pastors, they have to stay, he said. Pastors have to stay. You guys don't don't get to go. You've got to stay. And public officials, too, so you're in that boat, too. He said, you know, both can be right. But here's what he said. He said, but no matter what, you've got to deal with your fear of death because only once you've conquered your fear of death can you ask the most important question, the most relevant question, the real question you should be wrestling with, which is this, what's the most loving thing for me to do? How do I love God and others best in this? See, Christians go through life asking, what does love look like here? Not what's easy, not what's convenient, not what's good for me, but to live like that, you have to first conquer your fear of death. Otherwise, you, you will live avoiding risk. You'll settle for a safe, innocuous, self-centered life. But listen, that's not Christianity. So the antidote to fear is to know that God is near you and that he's infinitely great and infinitely good. And that is why, more times than not, when God addresses our fear, throughout all we read here in the Bible, when he addresses our fear, he often tells us not to be afraid by adding a promise. He says, do not be afraid for what? I am with you. Do not be afraid. I'm right here with you. Or we read Psalm 118 yesterday. Listen to what the psalmist says. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. And so the issue then is how can you be sure that God is indeed for you and not against you? Because that's what brings the courage you need into your life. And that brings us to the resurrection. Because what we see, the resurrection was the vindication of Jesus. It was God the Father's vindication of the Son. The proof that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. In our sinful rebellion against God, we have set ourselves against him. So in response, God came into the world in Jesus to do away with sin. On the cross, the Father set himself against the Son as the just sentence for the sins that he bore. He died to satisfy God's wrath. All of that so that when we believe, God can turn toward us. 
And because there is no sin in those of us who believe in Jesus left to condemn us, then God can say with all sincerity to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. And we can respond in all sincerity to him. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The resurrection also means that you don't have to be afraid of death. Then, in fact, you shouldn't be because if you believe, then it is not death to die. That's the title of an old hymn written by Cesar Milan, and here's his words. Listen to this. He says, It is not death to die to leave this weary road and midst the brotherhood on high to be at home with God. It is not death to close eyes long dimmed with tears and wake in glorious repose to spend eternal years. It is not death to fling aside this sinful dust and rise on strong, exulting wings to live among the just. Jesus, thou Prince of life, thy chosen cannot die. Like thee, they conquer in the strife to reign with thee on high. Death, here's what the resurrection means. Death is not the end of everything we hold dear. It is the beginning of life that is really life. If you are a follower of Jesus, we can say, we can say we have nothing to lose in death and everything to gain. Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus has taken away the sting of death. And that's why Christians have historically faced it with such courage. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that is why the message of the first Easter morning was, do not be afraid. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. So notice the description of the women as they left the tomb in verse 8. This is really important. Because when they first are confronted by the angels, it says they're afraid. It says of the, of the um, soldiers that they became like dead men. They were overwhelmed by their fear. And the word there is the same word we, we talked about on Friday night, phobia. And so they have this deep, like, paralyzing fear. But as we, we see them departing from this scene in verse 8, something's changed to them. And it says they departed, look there, verse 8, they departed quickly with fear and great joy. So the fear is still there. But the fear is different. It's there, but it's being muted by something else. It says they have the fear still, but they also have great joy. And that's just the word mega, mega joy. They're no longer consumed by their fear, paralyzed by it as if like dead men. But now it's still there. But now the fear and everything else they're feeling and thinking, it's all being consumed by the mega joy they feel. They're not being paralyzed by fear. They're now being propelled. It says, do you see there? They departed quickly. They departed with, you know, with energy, with haste because of the great mega joy. So not mega fear with a little joy. Fear, but with mega joy that wins out in the end. Now, you didn't think we were going to get through an Easter message without a reference to the Lord of the Rings, did you? And so, so not at this church. There's actually a resurrection pas passage in the Lord of the Rings. You may not have known that. Uh, but at the very end of the stories, if you're new to our church, I'm a huge um, Lord of the Rings fan. And I, it's, been, it's been long enough. It's time for another, another uh, reference. And uh, at the very end of the story, Sam, who is Frodo's companion as he takes the ring to Mordor to destroy it, he wakes up at the very end after he has fallen asleep thinking that he would die. Uh, he thought it was the end. He laid down to die. But he wakes up. He's in a really comfortable bed. Gandalf is there. The wizard is there next to him. And he asks, 
he asked Sam, you know, how are you feeling? And, and then it says this. He says, Sam laid back and stared, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. But at last he gasped, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened in the world? Listen to Gandalf's response. He said, a great shadow has passed. It has departed. And then it says, and then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Doesn't that sound like the last year? It fell on his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known, but he himself burst into tears. And then as a sweet rain will pass down the wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled out. How do I feel, he cried? How do I feel? Well, I, don't, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel like spring after winter and sun of, on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. Mega joy. Are you afraid? Second imperative we see... How, well, you say, okay, I need that. How do I get that? Well, you have to see the second imperative. And the second imperative here is in, found in verse 6, where the angel says to the women, come and see. And it's an invitation to believe. And so, if you're, if, are you afraid? You have to follow up that question with, do you believe? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. But then he says, do you believe this? He presses upon those people there in John 11 to consider whether they believe. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but do you, as a matter of personal conviction, believe he is? That's what matters most. The joy that can mute your fear comes from believing. And so Easter compels all of us to consider whether we believe or not. No matter where you are on the spectrum of faith, it compels us to consider. It's a truth too big for us to just pass it off. It really has to confront us. And the truth, it's, it's too big to not form some opinion. And so the, de de the details in the story imply that when the stone was rolled away, Jesus was already not there, okay? If you read the text, you see that. He had already been raised. And what that means is this, is that the stone was not rolled away. It was not rolled back so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled back so that you and I could get in. So that we could come and settle the issue of faith for ourselves. So the angel says to the women, come and see the place where he lay, verse six. And it's an invitation to us to consider the historical evidence of the resurrection and to know that it is reasonable to believe that what we read here actually happened, that when the stone was rolled away, the tomb was in fact empty. He was not there. Listen, this, was, this is a universally accepted historical fact, even by scholars who do not accept the resurrection. The problem is they just don't know what to do with the reality that they, that they know history is borne out. And not only that, Jesus also, after his resurrection, appeared to more than 500 people who served as eyewitnesses to his being alive. And so N.T. Wright, who's written thousands of pages on the evidence for the resurrection, says, if you rule it out, then you have a formidable challenge, which is to come up with a historically possible alternative explanation for the fact that the tomb was indeed empty and over 500 people came forward with eyewitness testimony. And so he concludes, no other explanation has been offered. In 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and their worldviews were transformed. So Tim Keller says, this means that on the one hand, 
The use of human reason alone cannot force us to believe in the resurrection. There's room for intellectual doubt of most any historical event. But on the other hand, belief in the resurrection of Christ is not a blind leap of faith. It has left an enormous footprint in history. Resurrection faith is not blind belief that rejects human reason. But you've got to do the work. You can't be lazy with this. You've got to weigh the evidence for yourself. You've got to settle this issue. Every single, every single one of us, no matter where we are, because if you haven't, if you're a skeptic when it comes to the supernatural elements of, of, of the faith, then that's the place to start, to hear the invitation given to us here, come and see. But as you do that, consider this. The Bible says that our problem is not that we cannot know. It's that because of sin, we know it to be true, but we don't want it to be true. Because of the implications that it brings, we have a sense of God we know that he exists, but what, what we're told in the Bible is that we suppress this knowledge, we push it down because of the massive implications it carries for our lives. So John Calvin wrote about this, and he said, the problem of not believing is not at root a lack of knowledge, it is a stubborn refusal to, to be convinced. We do not believe, not because we're ignorant, he said, but because we're sinfully irrational. Because we work so hard to, to push the truth down because of what it demands of us. So if you struggle with skepticism or doubt, I want you to know that. If you're here, if you're watching online and you're not a Christian, know that the first step to faith is to think, to consider the evidence, and to know that there are good intellectual reasons to believe the resurrection actually happened if you want to believe it. But that's really the issue. But let me also say something here to those of you who do believe. But maybe you're not changed by what you believe, at least not at the rate. It's not changing you at the rate you would like it to. I mean, that's me. Or maybe you don't feel, you know, you don't feel fear and mega joy because you believe like these people did here. You need to hear, hear and heed the invitation to come and see too. Because the reality is you can see without really seeing. You can hear without really hearing. You can know without it really making any difference, you know, in your heart. You can sing no guilt in life, and still be racked with guilt. Or no fear in death and still be deathly afraid of death because your faith is still just a, a merely a theoretical exercise. But there is a difference between knowing something is objectively true and the truth of it being so spiritually real to you that you're affected and changed by it. I grew up in Central Florida, lived here my whole life, and so... Uh, and particularly in the 80s and 90s, the, the shuttle launches at the Cape were just a part of life uh, if you grew up in this part of the, of, you know, of the state. And so I saw many shuttle launches throughout my childhood. I remember going outside at Garden Grove Elementary School when I was in fifth grade uh, to see the Challenger launch and immediately knowing something was wrong and the teachers were alarmed and going back in and watching the news coverage of the explosion. And so I was very familiar with all of it. It was just, just kind of a part of you know, life growing up. But then a, few, a number of years ago now, my children were younger. My boys and I got uh, to go to the Cape to watch a launch from the VIP section. Not because I'm a VIP, but because I got invited by somebody who was. And I can tell you, you know, you're there, they bust you out to basically an island that's just a couple of miles away from the actual launch pad. And, I, and I, can, I can eyewitness testimony tell you that I thought I knew about a shuttle launch. I thought I understood. I thought I had seen. But I hadn't because to be there and to feel the earth shake 
and to be blinded by the light of the rocket boosters, it was something totally different. All I remember is Kanan, who was very young, was on Maddie's shoulders, and he was just going, wow! <laughs> you know, and that was really, that was really the only response. I mean, that really was the only rational response because the ground shook like it did here, and we shook with it. And it was this overwhelming experience, and it was a great lesson to me that there's a difference between knowing in theory and then knowing by first-hand experience. And so let me just ask, which is true of you? See, if you believe, but it doesn't feel like it's making much of a difference, then come and see is an invitation to fight the remaining unbelief, first by just showing up. Doesn't that sound so, just by showing up. To know how easy it is to become spiritually calloused and dull and to show up to read the Bible every day and to be in worship with other people like we are this morning and to know the importance of that, to know the, to know the vital importance of hearing the gospel and being under the means of grace and then ask God as you show up in showing up to give you firsthand experience of his love and glory, to ask him to make it spiritually real to you until by the spirit he does, to beg him for it. And all of that's captured in the word behold, which is found three times in these 10 verses. And if you read it, it's strange because it kind of inter it interrupts the flow of the story. It's this word that's kind of inserted to kind of full stop the story to say, like, pay attention. And, hey, pay attention to what I'm about to say. That's what that word means. Because the resurrection is something so wonderful that it demands your full attention. And that's, and that's that word behold. It shakes you awake. It says, hey, focus. Hey, hey, hey. Wake up. What I'm about to say is really, really important. Don't miss it. The cure for fear is beholding. Being arrested by the truth claims of the resurrection. And when that happens, listen, it will lead to the third imperative, which you find twice here as well. And then actually, because it's Matthew 28, you find it a third time down in verses 28 and 29, and it's just this. Go and tell. And so will you go? You know, the angels here were dispatched to the empty tomb to tell the women what had happened so that they weren't left to themselves to form conclusions. Then the women were sent to the rest of the disciples to tell of what they had seen, or maybe it's better to say what they had not seen. And then the disciples were sent to the rest of the early Christians to tell them, and then down in verses 18 through 20, we are now sent into the world to tell the world the good news of the risen Christ. The resurrection leaves us with a mission, go and tell the whole world. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post this past week that made the rounds among pastors and church leaders about a recent Gallup poll sh that showed for the first time in the history of our nation, less than half, less than 50% of Americans are members of a religious organization like a church. That actually includes mosques, synagogues, and churches, and so less than 50%, 47% actually. But what's fascinating is uh, that it happened in just 20 years, and 20 years ago, in the year 2000, that number was 70%, and actually it held right at 70%. It would fluctuate up to about 73, down to about 68, from 1930 to 2000. No change. And then in the, from the year 2000 to the year 2020, we have gone from 70 to 47%. Something's really, really happening in our culture. Now more than ever, people are unfamiliar with and need to hear the good news of the risen Christ. Just this week, we read in CBR, faith comes from hearing. But how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so John Piper, 
he used to say that there are three types of people, the radical goers and the radical senders, and then just the disobedient. It's the most John Piper thing I've ever heard John Piper say. It's just kind of black and white. You're either a radical goer or you're a radical sender or you're just disobedient. And I don't know whether it matters whether you're a radical goer or a radical sender, but what matters is that you're radical. That there's an urgency. That you feel an urgency, not just because of the statistics I just quoted, but because of the profundity, because of the, the, the enormity of the claim, of the truth of here that Jesus is not dead but is alive. Do you feel the urgency of it to share the gospel message with those who have not heard or may need to hear again, with your kids, with your family, with your friends, whoever it might be. But the text does tell us that if you believe, wherever you are, you have to rethink you know, you're being there. You've been sent there. And so for most of us, will you go is not a matter of changing locations, but just doing things differently where we already have been placed. Who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? The families on your Little League baseball team, the people you work out with, they work out at the same time as you do at the gym. Have you considered that it is not coincidence, but providence that God has sent you to those people and those places where you already are to be a witness? You don't have to go. You're already there. The question is, though, will you tell? Go and tell. And that's scary, isn't it? Particularly in a culture where there's this increasing hostility towards faith and apathy towards these things. And so we're back to fear. <laughs> but the opposite of fear, according to the Bible, according to Christianity, is actually hope. Jeff used this. He prayed this for us. Because today really is a day of hope. And let, so let me tell you why I'm hopeful and not all that bothered by the Gallup poll that I, that I referenced a minute ago. And it's because we're in the twilight of all of the cultural projects of hope, all the cultural narratives of hope. We're in the twilight of all of those things. In 1857, a book called The Coral Island was published. And it was a story of a group of boys who were shipwrecked on an island. And in being shipwrecked, they came together and created a kind of idyllic paradise away from the corrupting influences of society. A <laughs> hundred years later, in 1954, the same story was told. William Golding wrote Lord of the Flies. Do you remember reading that in high school English? Little bit different outcome. This time, the group of boys descended to tribalism and violence and moral anarchy. Because our view had become so different over that hundred year span of time. In the 20th century, there was a hope in science and reason and the natural goodness of man to make use of the tools at his disposal to make a better world. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? In 1922, H.G. Wells wrote, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle? 1922. By 1945, after the atomic bomb had been dropped, he wrote, a series of events has forced upon the intelligent observer the realization that our human story has already come to an end. That mankind is played out. And he said, man should just give way to another animal who maybe in his ascension can take, can take the mantle that man has failed to carry. Now, that, that's the reality of the last 100 years or so. In the 21st century, we hope that technology would usher in a new and better world, but we have already realized 20 years in to a lot of those projects that the technology we thought would save us is actually the cause of many of the problems we're now facing. And the result 
is this profound loss of hope. For the first time in the history of our country, we expect that future generations will have it worse and not better than we do. That's where we are. Enter Christianity. Which claims the opposite. That God is taking the world somewhere toward a bright future that belongs to all who believe. Jesus' first breath was the beginning of that new world that is even now pushing back into the here and now of this world. The resurrected Jesus himself is the fresh grass of the kingdom of heaven growing through the concrete of corruption and decay in the old world. There's hope for the world. That's what this story means. In reality, here's the thing. In reality, the idea of historical progress and hope was because of Christianity, you know, in the beginning anyway. So no wonder that as it's been cut off from its source, the result is this growing cynicism and despair and boredom. But this is the moment. See, this is the moment for people of faith to help the world remember the hope that got things started in the first place. To be reintroduced to the real hope, the, the story of God coming into the world to die upon a cross for the sins of the world and be raised so that the world might be made new. That is the message the world needs to hear. Jesus is alive. You believe it? You don't have to be afraid. Jesus is alive. And his spirit is in the world, and so you can live with mega joy. Jesus is alive. But he implores us, go and tell the world. Just as the hymn writer said, the Lord is risen, thou trembling soul. Let fears no more confound. Let heaven and earth from pole to pole, the Lord is risen, resound. Amen? Pray with me, would you? So, Father, there are many of us in this room this morning who these things are familiar to us. They're familiar to us, but they have become stale. Our hearts have become dull. We sing, but it's just the reciting of words. There's, no, there's, there's nothing that explodes inside of us. Oh, what a, what, a, what a terrible state to be in, Father, to live with such a hard heart. And we would pray that you would come, even now, and open our eyes to see. Start with me. Open my eyes to the spiritual reality of the resurrection that I would see and would be filled with mega joy like this and would, it would just set me on fire to go into the world bearing the message of the resurrection to those who so desperately, who, the world who has lost hope and who desperately needs to be reconnected with some vision of what the future might look like. Uh, but there's some of us, Father, who would say, we don't know if we believe and we realize that faith is something that your spirit must accomplish in us. And so we would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, convince us of the truth of our sins, of our rebellion before you, and yet of your heart, your great love for us in coming into the world to pay the penalty for our sins, and then rising on the third day that you might make us and make all things new. It's too great to hardly be comprehended and spirit come and convince us of this truth. But either way, no matter where we are on the spectrum of faith this morning, would you, in these quiet moments we have, would you press upon our hearts the implications? Would you create in us the urgency that this demands of us? And now our response in this moment is, is with song. 
our response, what we do with that urgency right now is to begin to sing and then to go and to continue to sing. But for now, to just be here with our people and sing because you're worthy, because of what you've accomplished that we've come to celebrate this morning deserves so much more than the few of us can do. That There will be a day where the millions and billions we, we, we gather around your throne and we will sing worthy is the lamb who was slain. But may we enter into that even now in these moments as we have this time here together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, I hope you have a great day of celebrating with family and friends if that's what you're gonna do this today. Uh, but I pray that you would go with that song on your lips, with the urgency uh, of the resurrection upon your heart. Uh, but know this, we, are not, we don't go from this place to try to earn God's love and acceptance. We go because of the resurrection, we can be confident that his face is already turned towards us. That's what these words mean. So receive the word of this benediction. This is the power. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Surely I'm with you to the end of the age. This is the assurance of that spoken over you um, by, by one who, like me, who is here as his representative. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, even now as you go, and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive. Don't be afraid.